0: The scripture reading for this morning is Ruth 1, 6 through 22. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say, I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night, and bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly better to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord was gone And your God, my God, where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, we've got a fair bit to cover this morning, but I um, just wanted to share a, an exhortation before we pray and jump into the word. Um, I was at a conference this past week, and I was very affected by a message I heard from a fellow by the name of Sam Storms. And it was uh, rooted here in Galatians 3, verse 8. Don't worry, this isn't a second little sermon ahead of my other sermon. But I wanted to wanted to read this uh, uh to, to us, uh, for us this morning. Paul writes, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? It's uh, This is so important. I'm going to pray in a minute. And I pray every Sunday that we would that this would be operative for us because it's not enough to hear the word read or the word preached, but we need to lean in. We need to lean in and hear it with faith. We need to trust that God is addressing us. God is speaking to us. God has a word, not just for us generally, but to come in and lean in and, and trust that God has a word for you and for me this morning. And and that is by His Spirit. God loves to pour out His Spirit on the lives of His people. And His Spirit accompanies His Word as we lean in and trust it. So let's pray to that end together this morning, shall we? Father in heaven, we look to You. You love to give good gifts to Your children. And the greatest gift You have given us is Your Son, And your spirit. The spirit of Christ is in us. We are in him. And so I pray this morning, Father, that you would speak. We are your children. Give us ears to hear and listen and receive and trust to believe that you have a word for us, for me. That you want to address us with words of hope and love and grace. Wash your word over us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, last week, Jake began our, our new sermon series in the book of Ruth. And uh, if you were here, you'll know that Jake sort of began at that those first five verses in the beginning of the book. And then he jumped over the whole book. Um, it's a short book. That's not a big jump. But then when he looked at the last few verses of the book, and that's, that's a great way to introduce this book because it sort of connects it to the wider story, the the redemptive historical story of God working in history through the lives of his people to ultimately bring about uh, the, the the person of Jesus Christ. And that's a bit where I want to start this morning because... At the end of the book, in that that genealogy, it's this brief genealogy. You know, many people probably skip over it, but we we, we can't afford to do that because it's a genealogy that connects the events of this book and Ruth in particular with King David, the the greatest king who ever reigned in Israel, the man after God's own heart. Ruth, this foreign, uh, pagan, Moabite woman, is in the genealogy of King David, the great king. And then if you were to jump ahead to Matthew's gospel, you'd see that Matthew picks up on this genealogy, and he sort of gives us the genealogical connections, not just from Ruth, to King David, but all the way through to Joseph and Mary and, and Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. And so it's important that as we read Ruth, we don't just read it as a story of, you know, this woman's suffering and the love of her daughter-in-law. We need to realize that the, the whole book is invested with uh, deep Redemptive significance. It's, this, is, this is a significant story in the history of redemption. Ruth shows us that, that God is at work in history to arrange, to carefully arrange the ancestry of his own son the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Savior of the world. It comes right from here. And Ruth is a key piece in that puzzle. Now, more specifically, the text that we are looking at this morning, the text that Sarah just read for us, more specifically, this text helps us to discern the hidden hand of God's grace working in and through the painful experiences of his people. That's what this passage is about. God's hidden hand of grace is working through the painful experiences of his people. And that—that that is something we need to know. Because we need to know that... The worst of times, the worst of times in our lives are never wasted. God is never going to waste the very the most terrible things that are going to happen to us. And that's that's the message of, of Ruth. See, even when it doesn't look like it. This is the message of this passage. Even when it doesn't look like it, God is with us and God is absolutely for us. In uh, in Back in 1773, the English poet William Cooper wrote a famous hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. We need to sing that uh, one of these days, Tanner. But uh, there's this fourth stanza that beautifully summarizes the point of the passage this morning. Here it is. Cooper writes, Judge not the Lord by feeble, feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence he hides a smiling face. You're not going to understand the God of the Bible the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, you're not going to understand how he is at work in your life if you, if you don't understand, if you don't discern, if you cannot see that behind every dark, every frowning, every bitter providence, he is looking toward you in love. He is smiling upon you with his grace and and the love of a father that will never let you go. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. This is important. So let's jump into the text this morning. I want to I just point out three things. There's so many things here, but I've boiled it down to three. I want to look at a loyal love, a bitter lament, and then a token of grace. Those are my three points. A loyal love, a bitter lament, and then finally a token of grace. Now before we can truly appreciate the loyal love that we read here in this text, this loyal love that that Ruth pours out toward Naomi in verses 16 and 17, we need to just step back a bit and and kind of get the bigger picture, to survey the wider context. If we were to summarize what Jake looked at last week in verses one to five, here's how I would put it. There's a famine in the land of Judah, and uh, Naomi and her husband and her two boys who are from Bethlehem, they move east to uh, this pagan country of Moab. Now that In hearing that, we ought to have a red flag. Something is not good here. Something is not right here. And then, and rather abruptly, it seems, the text tells us that Naomi's husband, Elimelech, just up and dies. Unexplained. And then her two sons, Malon and Chilion, they each marry Moabite women. Now, as Jake told us last week, the Moabites were not exactly on friendly terms with the Israelites. So this is another uh, red flag. This shouldn't be happening. This isn't kosher. And and so then, this is all in four verses. It's amazing. And then after four years of child, or after ten years, sorry, of childlessness... Both of the sons die like their father. Now, that's a lot of trouble. That's a lot of tragedy. Verse 5 is pretty bleak. It just states rather matter-of-factly, the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Now, consider it for a second. Here's this older Jewish widow living in this foreign, this pagan land without any family whatsoever and without any faith community to support her, and there's no social welfare, there's no benefits. She can't go down to the social welfare office and make an application and receive a monthly check. That's not happening here. And so really we need to understand that here in this situation, Naomi is living on, on the edge of life. It doesn't get much more difficult than this. And then we read verse 6, where we picked up the text this morning. Verse 6 tells us that Naomi arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. Here's why. For, because she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them bread, literally food, or sorry, food, literally bread. So Naomi hears this rumor. Naomi is probably gleaning in the fields of Moab, and she hears this rumor that God is on the move, that God is restocking the shelves of Bethlehem, the house of bread. And so she gets up. Verse 7 says that she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Now, a Jewish reader who's reading verses 6 and 7 would immediately pick up on something that's signaling uh, something a bit more significant. See, Naomi isn't just physically returning to the land of Judah, although she's obviously doing that. But this use of the word return here several times throughout the whole narrative signals that there's something more significant going on the reader sees that although Naomi doesn't know it yet, she's actually returning to the covenant love and the covenant care and the covenant faithfulness of Yahweh. And then, just after they've started out on their journey together, it's about a 200-kilometer trek uh, from where they were in moab sort of up and over and down and into bethlehem just after they've stepped out and started on the road naomi stops and she realizes something look at verses 8 and 10 8 to 10 but naomi said to her daughters-in-law go return each of you to her mother's house may the lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt kindly as you have dealt with the dead and with me The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. She wants them to get married. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept, and they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. See, they're stepping out on the road together, and Naomi stops because she realizes there is no future for my daughters-in-law in Judah. There's no future for my daughters-in-law in in, in Israel. They are going to be outcasts. They're foreign widows without children living in a foreign land. She's been there. She knows what that's like. She doesn't want that for her daughters-in-law. But they refuse. They won't listen to her. Now we read in verses 11 to 13, But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night, and should bear sons, twins, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. It's interesting how our pain is is magnified when we're suffering when our suffering causes suffering to those we love and we care about, it magnifies our pain, doesn't it? When we're suffering and others get caught up into our suffering, it just magnifies the suffering. And Naomi doesn't want that for her daughters-in-law. This is sort of a strange text because it's appealing to this ancient custom, this ancient custom that if you, if an Israelite husband died... His brother-in-law or his brother, sorry, or some near relative would be required to marry the widow and raise up children for him to keep his name going. So his, his name and his inheritance didn't die out in Israel. And so Naomi tells Orpah and Ruth that that's not going to happen. There's no way it's going to happen. There's no sons for for them to marry. She's not thinking. She doesn't realize that there is a a kinsman redeemer waiting in the wings. We'll meet him next week in chapter 2. She doesn't realize that. She doesn't see it. She thinks the future for her daughters-in-law is hopeless. They're going to be childless widows. These are young women. And so she's pleading with them, go home, go back. Go and meet a a nice Moabite boys and and go and have nice Moabite children. She wants them to have a life, a future. And Naomi also seems to be suggesting here that if they come with her, if, if Orpah and Ruth come with her, their lives are going to become as bitter and tormented as her life is. God's hand is going to be against them, perhaps, the way it's being against her. Now look at verse 14. And then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So here's what happens. Orpah kisses her mother-in-law. She says goodbye to Naomi, and she returns home. She goes back to meet a nice Moabite boy and have nice Moabite kids. But it says that Ruth clung, Ruth clung to Naomi. This word here is also used in Genesis 2.24 that speaks about the commitment that exists between a husband and a wife. This this covenant commitment that exists between a husband and a wife. That's the word that is used here to describe Ruth's commitment to Naomi. Naomi makes one last ditch effort to dissuade Ruth in verse 15. She said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth is resolute. She puts her foot down. She won't take, you know, Naomi's arguments She says in verses 16 and 17, this is her declaration of loyal love. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Some commentators suggest that this is really the the turning point of the whole story. The whole book of Ruth turns right here. Here at the crossroads between Moab and Bethlehem, Ruth shows us why this book bears her name. This is the only this is the only book in the Old Testament that bears the name of a non-Israelite. And this is why right here it's this declaration of loyal love to her mother-in-law. I love it. Now, some of you may have this on a, you know, on an embroidery. You know, this is the sort of thing that gets on Christ, on Christian cards, right? You know, you go to those Christian shops with all that kitschy stuff and somewhere this verse is on something. But this is not kitschy. This is not kitschy. This is not sentimental. This is wholehearted commitment and devotion. This is a loyalty of love that, that we can hardly begin to get our minds around. I love that that Ruth's commitment to Noah uh, to Naomi is a is a package deal. You know, she is not interested in hedging her bets. She isn't thinking about an alternative exit plan. Ruth is all in here, for better or for worse. Where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, and your God shall be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. In Hebrew, this kind of love, this kind of loyal love is called hesed. Now That's We don't probably bring out Hebrew words too often, um, but this is a, wor- a word worth knowing. If you want to say it, you know, like a good Jewish boy would say, hesed. There you go. You got to get that little sound in there. But this is chesed love. This is chesed love. And chesed is one of the richest, most wonderful words in all of the Old Testament. It's a wonderful word that describes the steadfast, the faithful, the gracious, loving kindness of the Lord. This is precious. Many Christians have memorized, for example, Lamentations 3.22, where it says, The steadfast love, the hesed of the Lord, never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. We know this. That's a great description of this kind of love. It never ceases. It will never cease. For all eternity, this love will never let us go. It will never come to an end. See, that's the kind of thing this morning you've got to lean into with faith. That's a word to you, Christian. That's a word to you. If your life is hidden with God in Christ, His Hesed love is toward you. It's a love that will never let you go. It's a love that will never run out. It's a love that will never end. This is the love that God has toward us. This is the love that God has toward His people. This is the love that God has toward His church in Christ. It's a covenant love that will never leave you or forsake you. Lean in. Hear. Receive. Trust. Believe that word to you this morning. This is crucial. It's also the sort of love that Christ wants us to show toward one another. Do you remember what what Jesus said in John 13? He says, just as I have loved you, so you are to love one another. See, Hesed love is not just the vertical love that God has toward us. It's the love that God wants us to live out toward one another. As brothers and sisters in Christ, if we've been loved by God in this way, it ought to be seen in the way that we love one another. And that's what Ruth is giving us an example of—that loyalty, that commitment. She's going to the to the ends of the earth with Naomi. Let me just say here, and I—I I think we, we're weak. We're very. We we, we give up too easily. I think we give up too easily. when, When people are difficult to love, and sooner or later, we're all difficult to love. If you know me for any length of time, you'll know I'm difficult to love. Just ask my wife. But if I got to know you, or you got to know each other, we'd all discover, guess what? No surprise. We're all difficult to love. And that, I think, is just at that point where God is saying, are you going to love like everybody else loves? Or are you going to love somebody else the way I've loved you? With that hesed love. Are you going to lean in? Is your your commitment going to go all the way through inconvenience, through difficulty, through frustration, through annoyance? I mean, I'll tell you, (laughs) Ruth's declaration of love to Naomi, I'm not so sure I'd be, you know, hey, I'm committed to you, Naomi. She's not, like I'm not, we're not, Naomi's not my favorite person in the whole Bible. (laughs) We're going to see more in a second. Sorry, Naomi. Anyway, let me move on. So when Ruth says, your people shall be my people and your God shall be my God, here's what she's doing. I love this. This is a bold woman. This is a faithful woman. She is writing herself into Israel's story. That's exactly what she's doing. When she says, your people will be my people, your God will be my God, Ruth is writing herself boldly, confidently, right into the redemptive story of Yahweh. And Israel, she makes it her own. All over the Old Testament, God again and again says, I will be your God and you shall be my people. And Naomi, Ruth picks up on that and she says, I'm going to take that. That's mine. I'm going to use that. I'm going to use that to write myself into the story of Israel. The God of Israel will be my God. God's people will be my people. It's it's striking here that Ruth the Moabite has more faith than Naomi the Israelite. On that day, on the road from Moab to Bethlehem, Ruth died. She died to her former life. She died to her old self. And like the people of Israel before her, she looked for life in the land of promise on the other side of the Jordan River. And that's what brings us to my second point. Look at verse 19. I'm going to look at this bitter lament. In verse 19, Naomi and Ruth arrive in the land of Judah. And we read, so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town, bethlehems a small town, they all came out. The whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? What a painful question. I mean, sometimes we can just be so mean to each other. (laughs) These are the girls that Naomi grew up with. She grew up with them she played games with them she went to school with them and they do not recognize her the years the troubles the suffering the losses they've taken a heavy toll on him, on her they do not recognize Naomi is this Naomi now it's the the name Naomi means means pleasant or or sweet and so as if to repudiate who she once was she responds with this bitter lament in verses 20 and 21 she said to them do not call me naomi call me mara for the almighty has dealt very bitterly with me i went away full and the lord has brought me back empty why call me naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So what can we learn from Naomi's lament here? I think there's two things. And I hope you're leaning in here because these are real takeaway points. First of all, the Lord is involved. The Lord is involved in our suffering. Look at verse 13. Naomi says, The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And then again, in these two verses, The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Here's the point. God is involved in our suffering. Now, I appreciate the fact that hearing that is not easy. I appreciate the fact that many people, even many Christian people, begin to squirm, begin to get uncomfortable. They don't want to hear it said, proclaimed, that God is involved. His hand is involved in our suffering. God really does bring calamity Upon us. Naomi is right to discern the hand of God in her suffering. That's good theology. It's not blasphemous to say that trials and troubles and devastation mysteriously, in the providence of God, work together to accomplish His good purpose. That's what's going on in her life. That's what's going on in your life. That's what's going on in my life. Behind a frowning providence, God is hiding his smile. He's working something through it and in it. Something more than than we could imagine. This is the message of the whole Bible. I mean, consider, consider Job. Perhaps, you know, next to Jesus, perhaps no one suffered the way Job suffered, right? Job lost all of his possessions. Job lost all of his children. And then in chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, here's what we read. Then Job arose and tore his robe, and shaved his head, and fell on the ground, and worshipped. And he said, here's what Job said, after losing everything, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And just in case we think that Job's theology is wonky, that he's got a wrong view of things, verse 22 adds, in all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. I mean, we could go down through many examples. But another one that really stands out is Joseph. I mean, I try and understand, this guy has an amazing attitude after all these things. His brothers hate him. I mean, they hate him and they conspire together to kill him. And then the last minute they decide not to kill him. They sell him into slavery and then he's taken down to Egypt. He's falsely accused by Potiphar's wife and he's unjustly imprisoned for years in an an ancient Egyptian prison. Probably makes like, like Turkish prisons look like Club Med. That was a joke. All of this terrible stuff happens to Joseph, right? And then later on in Genesis 50, Joseph meets his brothers face to face. And here's what he says. As for you, he's probably looking at him or maybe pointing at him. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. See God was doing something that the brothers the brothers meant one thing and God was working through it to mean something completely different. The brothers were working evil and God was working through their evil to bring about something good. That's the cross of Jesus Christ. Can't understand the whole Bible the whole gospel without embracing what I'm saying. What about Romans 8:28? I've got some time. I can riff on this for a second. Some people say, don't quote Romans 8.28 to anybody in pain. You know, God works all things together to those who love him or called according to his purpose. Let me just say right now, quote Romans 8.28 to me. If I am suffering, if I am in pain, if I am in trial, please come alongside, maybe with a gentle voice, quote Romans 828 to me that's the very truth that I need to hear Romans 828 is not some throwaway sentimental pious spiritual bromide that you 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 know you slip in there to relieve everybody's now, that doesn't relieve pain but it gives hope it gives hope to know that in the worst of my days in the deepest of my anguish in the darkest of my troubles God it's not a waste. God's at work. And, and God's not just at work, but God is working something good. God is working something glorious through it all. I've had the amazing privilege of a, as a pastor of, of having front row seats in the lives of people who have been through absolutely horrendous suffering. I don't know if I would survive. And because they have heard the word with faith, they believe it, they embrace it, they bring it into their hearts. This is, this is a word of hope. This is an anchor for their souls. This is a place that where they can find refuge. It's not all wasted. It's not by chance. One pastor writes, giving Satan the decisive control or ascribing pain to chance is not true or helpful. When the world is crashing in, please hear this. When the world is crashing in, we need assurance that God reigns over all. So the first thing we learn from Naomi's lament is that the Lord is involved in our suffering. The second thing and this is the other side of it, suffering can make us bitter and bitterness makes us blind. This is a warning. We will all suffer, but suffering isn't, you know, we just don't sort of look at it and see the always the shiny, smiley face behind the frowning providence. We've got to be on guard. This is why we need to lean in and to receive the word, to hear it with faith and trust and hope. Because the day of suffering is coming if it hasn't already come for you. The days of suffering. And suffering can make us bitter and bitterness. Bitterness always makes us blind. And that's what's going on here. Naomi is right. God is sovereign. God is almighty. God is governing all the affairs of nations and families and individuals. He's involved in her suffering. But here's the thing. Naomi cannot see the signs of God's gracious and merciful purposes that are unfolding all around her, even here, even now. She can't see it. She's missing it. Suffering has made Naomi bitter. And the bitterness has made her blind to God's goodness and grace. See, you and I have the privilege or the, the, uh, the uh, advantage of reading to the end of the story, right? We can read to the end of the story. And we can keep on reading and we can read the things that I was talking about earlier in Matthew's gospel, how it picks up on this genealogy and connects it to Jesus. We see the big picture. We are so privileged. But Naomi can't see it. But what if she could What if that day in Bethlehem, as she pours out her bitter lament, what if God revealed to her the fullness of what was really going on? I can't help but think that she would just begin to to praise the Almighty, to, to leap and rejoice and sing His praises. If you could see, if we could see what God is working out of all the trials and troubles of our lives we'd never complain we'd never complain we'd we'd only worship i wish i wish that she could have seen it i wish that i wish that she could have read cowper's poem <laughs> judge, judge not the lord by feeble sense but trust him trust him for his grace Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. See, spiritual blindness brought on by suffering twists the truth about God. Instead of believing that God is gracious and and he's smiling down on her, Naomi implies that the Almighty is being cruel to her. Instead of seeing the, the discipline of a loving father, she sees the heavy hand of a bully. Her, her suffering has made her bitter and her bitterness has made her blind. See, here's the thing that we must always guard against. And, and when I am tempted, I just look at the cross. I say, this is the God that I worship, the God who sacrificed his son for my sin. The God who whose bitter wrath was poured out on his son. When I look at the cross, I cannot doubt the grace of God. I cannot doubt the Hesed love of God and the commitment of God. But when I forget, when I forget the cross, when I forget my hope in Christ, I, you know, when you forget, don't we exaggerate how hopeless and difficult things really are? That's what she's doing here. Look at this. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. All she can see is the loss and the void. Now, what about Ruth? You know, Ruth is probably standing right there beside her and saying, What am I, chopped liver? I just pledged my Hesed loyal love to you. I am with you through thick and thin. You can count on me, and, and you're empty? Do you not see, she's blind, she doesn't see the provision of God standing right beside her in the person of her daughter in law. I think like Naomi, we can be busy complaining about our emptiness, so busy that we miss the fact that God God is emptying our hands, perhaps, in order to fill it with something better, much, much, much better. One of my favorite quotes is, I can't remember who said it, but I never knew that Christ was all I needed until Christ was all I had. Naomi should have read the third stanza of Cooper's hymn. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Or what about the fifth stanza? I could go through them all, but here's another one. God's purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Let me just wrap up with the third and final point, the token of grace. Look at verse 22. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Three things quickly. First of all, it's a very interesting way that the author has has worded this verse. It's saying that not only has Naomi returned, but it says that Ruth the Moabite has returned. Now, Ruth the Moabite never left Bethlehem. She's she's not returning in that way, in the way that Ruth is returning. But I think she is returning. She's returning in that profound way that I talked about earlier. She's returning because God has foreknown her from before the foundations of the world. See, this whole story is about God singling out a Moabite woman far away, outside the covenant people, outside the covenant land. And it's about reaching out to her through the person and through the suffering of Naomi to bring her in, to call her to himself so that she might return to her father, her father in heaven, whose love is loyal steadfast, unfailing. This is what this is all about. Ruth is indeed returning. She's coming home where she finally and fully belongs. First point. Second, I love this mention, this sort of casual mention at the very end of the barley harvest. This chapter, if you went back to chapter 1, verse 1, the chapter began with a famine. And now we have the hint of a harvest. And this is the beginning of what's about to come. God is about to unleash a spiritual harvest of his grace upon Naomi and upon Ruth and upon Boaz and upon all the ends of the earth through Jesus Christ. All in a word, this barley harvest, it's there. It's hinting at, it's telling us, pay attention Something wonderful is coming. And finally, they're in Bethlehem, the city of David, the city where Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven, is born and laid in a manger. Jesus Christ is the one. We, He's the one that took the bitter wrath of God for us. He's the one who feeds us, who satisfies us, who gives us a home with his father. He's the one that ensures to every one of us who believes that no matter what we are experiencing, no matter how dark, how difficult, how painful it is, I promise you now, and I say this with all the authority of the triune God of heaven, he looks towards you with a smiling face. And he says to you, you are my beloved child. With you I'm well pleased. Trust me. Look to me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're humbled. We're absolutely humbled to see this, this little piece of canvas that you've painted this beautiful picture on of your covenant love, your Hesed love. Thank you for Ruth. Thank you for Naomi. Thank you for this this little... this window into your heart. Lord, we tremble. We tremble. Uh, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We tremble. But we hope. We hope because Christ has suffered, because Christ has risen, because Christ is ours and we are his. And your hessed love will never leave us, forsake us, or let us go. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen.
0: Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit christcitychurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.